On November 13th, Eric Trevarthen was asked to remove himself from his place of residence. That request came from his hamster, Auntie Fluffikins. Deep down, he knew she was right, but he also knew that someday he would return to her. With nowhere else to go, he appeared at the home of his childhood friends Jeffrey Sire and George White. Somewhat earlier, Jeffrey and George's hamsters had thrown them out, requesting that they never return. Can three hamsterless men share an apartment without driving each other crazy? Probably not, but this podcast goes out to them anyway. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue wow i'm breathing right into that microphone there's legion off the starboard bow can steven scrape them off matthew's three iterations deep in photocopies while every single night rodrigo has this reoccurring dream that he's wearing lederhosen in a vat of sour cream but that's really not important to the story uh mio parlare dell'italiano simplesimente terribile ma il mio manara assolutamente superiore uh come facciare pedire il freaking awesome in italiano my brain's repeating, if you've got an impulse, let it out, but they never make it past my mouth. I'll sit in wonder of every love that could have been, and I've only thought of something charming to say. Baba, baba. This is the sound of podcasting, along with the occasional curse word, Stephen's beer can crunching, that girl who keeps sneezing in the background, Rodrigo's noisy furnace, and a few strange noises that remind me a little too much of Stephen King's story, 1408, of which the less said the better. Uh, Major Girls Podcast on here. Functional is all I will say to that. <laughs> Hello, yeah. everyone, and welcome to a new issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast, <laughs> issue 384, to be precise. Oh, can't wait till later in the show. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to talk decide about... whether it's the girl in the background, Rodrigo's furnace, or your alcoholism that is functional. Functional! <laughs> uh, it's certainly not my furnace. So <laughs> yeah, I don't out. think it's the... And the girl in the background just sneezes at random, so... Let's take a look at the news. Transformers 4 has been confirmed and Michael Bay is on board. Are you threatening me? We take a look at Power Girl's costume. Kaijudo Rise of the Dual Masters has been announced. Doctor Who Star and Star Trek crossover. And Smallville gets another season. Let's spin that wheel of the destiny. Find out where it lands. Everybody wants to talk about the boob window, but unfortunately, it lands on Doctor Who and Star Trek crossover planned for later this year. Check this out. IDW, which is no stranger to crossovers, uh, I might add, has announced that they're going where no one has gone before, crossing Doctor Who and Star Trek, the next generation, into Mm -hmm. a, I don't know how many issues this is going to be, but... I bet it's 17. issues, 17 issues of awesome. It's probably going to be six. Pretty much everything. Assimilation is. two or assimilation squared actually features the Electric Cybermen and the, Do- and, and the uh, Borg. The Borg uh, and the Cyber. Okay. I'm in. They create an unholy alliance resulting in potential disaster for all humanity. Jean-Luc Picard. And the crew of the USS Enterprise find themselves joining forces with the Doctor and his companions with the fate of the galaxy hanging in the balance. Rodrigo, go! Well, I think um, I already know what the twist is going to be here, and that's that 
The doctor's going to go, oh, hang on. He's going to jump at the TARDIS and then he's going to come out and he's going to bring another guy uh, from another universe that has crossed over with Star Trek. And they're going to defeat the Borg and the Cybermen by having Warlock from the X-Men um, interface with them. <laughs> And then make all three of those villains, which are essentially oh, the good. same thing. Even better, what Wrong. if they crossed over with Ben 10, where he no, no, turns no, no. into the uh, the techno alien? Mm-hmm. He's oh, going yeah. to cross over, and he's going to open it, and he's like, I've got someone you'd like to meet. And you'll hear, <laughs> come with me if you want to live. There you go. Yep. Eight-issue series written by Scott and David Tipton, uh, the ones who wrote the Star Trek infestation uh, story in the current mm-hmm. or the previous infestation uh big event that IDW has done and Tony Lee doing the uh, uh, also writing and art by uh, JK Woodward of fallen angel fame. Cool. Matthew, what do you think of this? Are you just like having a little uh, geek gasm <laughs> in the corner going, Oh my God, they got their doctor who in my star Trek. <laughs> well, you know how we'll, we'll be like, Hey, they're going to do a movie of Watchmen and everybody will go, Oh, this is going to suck. And I'll go, Maybe not. I don't really. This to me is another one of those things where adaptations are always problematic. Adaptations are usually a huge lie. Right. But this one at least has a narrative sense to it because, you know, I remember in 19, what, 93, I was in college and I was, you know, I was friends with hipsters, which is kind of like now, only different in that my hipster friends are old. They're hip- By the way, the girl friends. is now hiccuping in the background. She gave up on sneezing. But the Borg, when they were introduced, there were people on uh, Rec Arts uh, Doctor Who, I think it may have been. This was back in the pre-days of the Intar webs. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're just ripping off the Cyberman, and this is, this is awful, and we hate everybody. But, you know, to me, I think that if I were writing this story, it would go something like this. The Borg and the Cybermen come together and they realize they have a common, you know, ancestor. And that ancestor is V'ger. And <laughs> then we're cha-chaing. Because, you know, y- you've got you've got to accept the fact that these things are tied together in right. weirdly incestuous ways. Well, you know, ways. there there are interpretations of that V'ger story that V'ger actually fell onto the Borg planet. And that right. is how V'ger gained his sentience or its sentience. Which which I believe uh, Gene Roddenberry himself had uh, posited that particular posit. Ah, I think go. that it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to two things. Okay. Um, IDW's Doctor Who uh, has been a pretty good series. And they have a pretty good hold on Matt Smith's Doctor. Mm-hmm. If they're going to use Gene Luck Pickard. <laughs> I, I Gene Luck really, Pickard. Gene Luck Pickard. Is there a Gene Luck Pickard? Telegram for Gene Luck Pickard. If they're going to use Gene Luck Pickard, I would have rather seen Gene Luck Pickard play off the fourth or the seventh Doctors, yeah. who are basically wacky funsters, uh, whereas the eleventh Doctor is kind of like a you know a young, extremely fuzzy-headed Gene Luck Pickard. Mm-hmm. I understand why they're going to use the incumbent Doctor, right? But you know, for all intents and purposes, I'll probably pick this up in the same way that I pick up Star Trek Legion of Superheroes, where I'm like, you know. It's not really Star Trek, and it's not really Legion of Superheroes, but it's interesting. Oh, yeah. And depending on how well it's written, you know, it it could go places. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the thing that I'm most looking forward to is um, the Bill and Ted meet um, Star Trek Voyager (laughs) 
Um, yeah, actually, crossover. the one that I'm looking for is uh, Bill and Ted meet or Vladimir Star Trek and Enterprise or whatever that series was. That is going to be an <laughs> epic afternoon in the coffee shop. Um, <laughs> you throw in a little Timon and Pumbaa and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and it'll be we'll call it eight characters in search of uh, a dead bug. I don't know. Rodrigo, is this something that uh, you get excited about? I mean, we've talked before that the only time we can really get you to read comics is when we make you read comics. Yeah, I'm not I'm not terribly excited about this, not for any, you know, not because I don't think it's going to be any good. Uh, it used to be that this sort of thing really infuriated me. Um, I, I read some of the um, Star Trek uh, X-Men crossover and like, you know, like like has been said before, it wasn't Star Trek and it wasn't X-Men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just some hybrid in the middle. And that kind of Star upset Sex me. Man. I was like, why, why bring two franchises that can't possibly work together? And, um, there's a lot of reasons to do it. The main one being money. Yeah. Right. Um, but I've, I've realized that A, it's going to happen. B, it's interesting to see what the writers do with this weird hybrid world, what concessions they make. So, you right. know, from that yeah. standpoint, it is interesting to see what they say. Oh, you know, in order for the doctor and the crew of the Enterprise to exist in the same universe, here are the things that we have to downplay and here are the things that we have to bring up. So mm-hmm. in that well, sense, it is interesting. I, I will say if, this. IDW has done what I think is a very good to fantastic job with uh, some of their crossover events. Uh, infestation, the uh, zombie invasion that they had last year, and now the um, infestation uh, by HP Lovecraft is incredibly good. And in a little bit, I'm going to tell you guys all about Star Trek and the Legion of Superheroes, the new issue that comes out this week from IDW. And, man, they do a good job. They understand in the care of these properties as opposed to just, well, let's just smash them together and see what happens. Right. I think that they missed an opportunity here. Two opportunities. Obviously, if you're writing this and whoever's writing this, you're probably listening because they do listen. Oh, if you do, do not make a reference to Berlinghoff Rasmussen, you are doing yourself a disservice. And secondly, the fact that they didn't use the second doctor or excuse me, the fifth doctor interacting with the Enterprise is a shame because the fifth doctor traveled with an artificial human, mm-hmm. an annoying punk kid that nobody really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, a dark-haired woman with strange hairstyles and an inexplicable accent, and and Nissa, who you know just kind of flounced around in outfits that were completely inappropriate. So I mean, you could you could put these <laughs> groups together, and you could do you know a Groucho, a, a Harpo Marx, and Lucille Ball doing the the mirror routine with Adric and Wesley, and then you know you can chuck them out an airlock and be done with it. Now, Star Trek, I don't know if if Star Trek stuff is you know anytime you do a comic book or anything like that, if it's in continuity. But Doctor Who fans seem to be, oh, is this in continuity or not in continuity? Does the Doctor mm. Who comics that IDW is putting out right now, Matthew, do you know if they are in continuity or not? The non-crossover the Doctor Who comics. I will, I will quote for you what the producers of Doctor Who have said in the past 55 years about what is and isn't in continuity. And they have said... Excellent. So really what it comes down to is your Doctor Who continuity is is really, honestly, a matter of what you love. For me, there's a novel called The Eight Doctors, mm-hmm. which is set immediately after the 1996 telefilm. 
and has the the eighth doctor, the Paul McGann version, going back in time and interfacing with his previous seven selves at points in the story where not only it tells us about the eighth doctor, but it explains continuity issues and continuity questions of nice. the past seven doctors. Excellent. So he shows up in the middle of the six doctors trial and he's responsible for the thing that makes that last season so wonky. And when the third doctor freaks out and, you know, is, is having his problems and can't leave earth and the master is doing weird things and no one knows why that's because the eighth doctor was there and the second doctor acting atypically at the end of the war games or the first doctor trying to kill someone with a rock in, uh, the, the 10,000, 100,000 years BC. All of these things play into that story. And for me, that is absolutely in continuity because it's, it's paramount to my understanding of five of the eight doctors for all intents and purposes. So when it comes to Doctor Who stories, with a few exceptions, pretty much what you want to be in continuity matters and what you don't want to be in continuity, you can just ignore because, you know, they probably won't reference either of them. Good. That's why we can dive right into the email bag. Uh, email does email. not make a sound. Hello, Major Spoilers. Why I want to know if me? you or Matthew or anybody knew whether the 1999 Doctor Who Christmas special with Rowan Atkinson was <laughs> canon or not. If it was, that would throw off the current Doctor numbering. There you go. So, Matthew, what about this okay. Christmas special with Rowan Atkinson <laughs> as the Doctor? Now, this is important. Um, it, it, around the holidays in Britain. More or less important BBC. than uh, email that makes this sound. Shut up. Does something <laughs> called comic relief. Right. Now, it's, it, it is important to note that since the new Doctor Who, the 2005 uh, re revival kind of Doctor Who, there have been comic relief stories. Mm -hmm. like Time Crash, where the 5th and 10th Doctors interacted, that are canonical. The story that he's referring to is, I believe, titled The Curse of Fatal Death. And it stars Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, and his, uh, his sidekick, his companion, is played by Saffron from Absolutely Fabulous. Mm -hmm. And during this story, the Doctor is stupid, and re he basically regenerates like five times. He goes from being Mr. Bean to being um, Richard Grant to being Jim Broadbent to being Hugh Grant and ends up uh, turning into Joanna Lumley from Absolutely Fabulous, I believe. Uh, or maybe it was Jennifer Saunders. I always get them confused. Um, one of the girls from AbFab. Here is the thing. I... Love this story. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. It's awesome. Jonathan Price plays the master, and at the end, the doctor and the master, you know, fall in love because he's, the doctor's a woman now. I don't think that it can be considered in canon. Right. Partly because of the fact that, you know, there are, there are five regenerations in the story. Partly because they keep making reference in continuity to, I've never been a woman, I've never been a ginger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 10th and 11th doctors have both referenced not being a ginger and the 11th doctor specifically went, Oh my God, I'm a girl. No, wait, I'm not a girl. He's, he, he made a reference at one point to never having been a girl. Mm -hmm. And also while it's a very funny story, a very loving pastiche, it is just a, a goofy side story. If you want it to be in continuity, I suppose you're going to have to, if you want to be that guy, you're going to have to figure out a way around the 12 regeneration limit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because if we take it, if we presume that at that point in time, Sylvester McCoy, the seventh doctor, 
was incumbent, he had five uh, five regenerations, six regenerations there. That'd get him to thirteen. Then he regenerated to Paul McGann. That'd get him fourteen. I don't know. It, I, I was be, always yeah, told I think in the eighteen nineteen right now. I was always told that the Christmas specials and the children's crusade stuff was all out of continuity. Um, the more recent stuff, I believe, is not because Time Crash mm-hmm. takes off specifically from that last Rose episode and kind of makes a bridging sequence from that episode into the Titanic episode with uh, Kylie Minogue. And I know that the last ones they did, the time and space crossover where the doctor accidentally landed the TARDIS inside the TARDIS. Right. Those, I believe, transition between the two Amy Pond and Rory seasons. But could you make more noise over there? <laughs> anyway, um, I think that by, by mentioning that she's in the room, she's decided that she's going to be part of the show now. I see. But I would say that... Those are definitely designed to be in continuity if you're aware of them, if you want them to be. I believe that this is more of a, we really want our show back and we wish our show was on the air. And this is the kind of cool stuff that we miss about our show. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's canonical, but then again, you can make an argument that even the Peter Cushing stories are somehow canonical. Because it is a, a, there are far, far greater things in you know, Horatio's consciousness and like that. All right. So call it an alternate universe. It's earth C. There you go. Listeners. Uh, you can head over to majorspoilers.com. You can learn more about doctor who you can learn more about star Trek. You can read a bunch of reviews. You can go every Tuesday and go check out the major spoiler staff picks where we pick which comics we are most looking forward to in the week to come. Of course, we've also got uh, top five up there. Top five, number 14, the top five sequels to anything. That and much, much more. Majorspoilers.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some reviews. How to get a Major Spoilers shout-out. If you want to get a personalized shout-out at the top of the show, all you have to do is the following steps. Number one, visit Majorspoilers.com. Two, click on the Make a Donation button. Three, donate $10 or more to the cause. Four, Sit back and relax, and hear Matthew butcher your name and say something cute about you. Major spoilers, bringing the good stuff since 20-06. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to the Major Spoilers cause. Remember, if you like what you hear, if you think it's worth $2 per episode, or really $2 a month, uh, think uh, think about doing one of those small recurring donations. Uh, of course, you could do a two or a five or a ten dollar, and with that ten dollar comes that uh, top of the show shout out directly to you. Did you hear the girl in the back end round of Rodrigo's? <laughs> Let's get to some reviews. All right, we've just spent some time talking about IDW, Star Trek, and Doctor Who. I will kick things off. With IDW's Star Trek and Legion of Superheroes number five, brand new out this week by Chris Roberson and the uh, Moy Brothers doing the art. First of all, I know what cover I want. The one with Kirk surrounded by sexy looking Legion of Superhero uh, female heroes characters. Is that one drawn by the Moys? Yes. <laughs> How <course>. many tongues? <laughs> no tongues in this one. Uh, very, there are no very tongues nice. sticking out? Not in this one. 
it can't be a moy then. It's I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I have, have somehow forgot to read issue four. I don't know why, but uh, the team has been split. You've got uh, stranded now in the far, far uh, Earth's past at the Stone Age. You have uh, McCoy and Chekhov and uh, Spock with um, Saturn Girl. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Brainiac and uh, Metal Boy and Metal Boy. Uh, Metal Boy. What's his name? Metal Boy. The, uh, not Pharaoh Lad. Uh, Pharaoh Lad. No, 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 no. Not Pharaoh Lad. I forget what his Chameleon name is. Chameleon Boy. No, no, no. Not Chameleon Boy. He's in the. He's in the Cosmic Boy. Cosmic Boy. Well, he is in the uh, uh, Chameleon Boy. Uh, Shadow Lass. Who else? Kirk and. Yeah, I forget who else there. They are in uh, an Ohura are in the future, the alternate uh, universe timeline where everything's crazy. And uh, the past heroes are trying to figure out how to get out of a of a trapped cage. They've got these inhibitor collars around their neck. None of their powers are working, uh, so on and so forth. The future group are trying to figure out who is the emperor? Why is the emperor here and how can he have lived millennia upon millennia? And we get the story both from the Star Trek universe and from the DC universe in the um, Star Trek universe. We know of somebody who has lived forever until he left planet Earth as being Flint. Right. Um, the, mm-hmm. That was the Methuselah episode. I, I think that Requiem from, Re- yeah, right. from Methuselah. And then, of course, the um, immortal from the DC universe, Vandal Savage. Well, because you're squeezing the timelines together in these two worlds, uh, the emperor, this immortal, is Vandar the Stone. Uh, got They're the same guy! Yeah, they really are. They're all mashed up together. L- looks a lot like Vandal Savage that we would expect, and, and really drawn the way that we would expect to see Flint and, and Vandal Savage mixed together. The interesting part of this story... Uh, well, there's a whole bunch of interesting parts of this story. We find the heroes in the past are freed by a little girl who knows about their plight and is talking about uh, she's actually being possessed at the time she frees them and is explaining the backstory about this uh, entity that uh, came from the far future that can span both time and space. And he went back to the past to uh, do a favor for a friend and he was trapped by Vandar, very much like a genie in a bottle. And that is how um, uh, Vandar has been able to conquer most of the of, of the galaxy uh, and create this weird conglomeration of uh, DC outer space worlds and Star Trek worlds uh, uh, going at it. It's kind of fascinating in that part. Um, and the entity that's trapped this genie that's trapped inside this big bubble is basically wanting the heroes of the past to fix the problem free the entity and set things right the future heroes um have a conversation with vandar and he's like you are not the first time travelers to ever and this is major spoiler alert people uh this is a new issue that comes out this week Uh, Vandar the Stone says, you're not the first time travelers to ever visit me. You will tell me the history of your worlds so that I can find out where you made mistakes so I can correct them in my timeline. And they're like, what do you mean the first time travelers? He's like, come with me. And they walk down this hallway and they enter a chamber that is 
geek gasm time traveler paradise. Not only do you see the bubble that uh, supposedly contains this this genie character, but uh, you also see the uh, portal that uh, the Star Trek characters jump through to go back in time. The, uh, the city Guardian on the edge of Forever. Of, yeah, the Guardian of Forever. You also see a cosmic treadmill in the shot. Nice. You also see a Doctor Who phone booth. You also see a Bill and Ted phone booth. You also see a Stargate gate. You also see nice. hot tub time machine. You also see the uh, time tunnel. You also see the time machine of H.G. Wells's movie. You see a time bubble. You see a back to the future DeLorean. You even see the uh, Prince of Persia dagger in there and nice. probably a dozen more devices for manipulating time wedged in here. Brilliant. I think this is a brilliant move by Roberson and the Moyes. And I was, I was talking with Roberson today about this and I was like, so who came up with the idea of cramming all these time travel things into this double page spread? And he said, well, I had an idea for the things that I wanted in there. And then the Moyes shoved in a whole bunch more. So it is really a treat to see all these time travel devices and Vandar saying, Hey, they've all come to me at some point and I've captured them and learned from them and killed them. Now that, if that doesn't sound pretty awesome, it gets better. The little girl leads them back to, and again, this is way far in the past, leads the past team into the exact same chamber that will one day be the future uh, Emperor time travel throne room where the bubble currently rests. The entity goes, uh, releases his control of the little girl and is fully immersed back into the bubble again. And the entity is like, I don't want an immortal caveman controlling me. I don't want anyone who can tell me what to do. Q doesn't like to lose. And Q is the entity that is trapped inside the bubble. It is. When you see that, it's like fricking a. Is there a gene luck pickard here? Yeah. And that's, what's cool because this is the same Q that we're going to see in. Star Trek, the Uh next generation. uh So this is a talk about mashing up your properties and doing it right. And then going even more beyond that with throwing in these references to like Stargate and hot tub time machine and back to the future and all this other stuff. And then to throw in Q as the one that Vandar, the stone has captured and, and made to alter reality is just wonderful. I was really concerned when this series started off that it was not going to make sense how they were going to explain everything away and in this penultimate issue, Roberson has done that. The art by the Moyes, fantastic. Have always loved their art. Have always loved their Legion of Superheroes art. And so this is like peanut butter and chocolate. This is like ice cream and cake. This is like Christmas and your birthday on the... Well, wait a minute. That's not... That doesn't That's quite not good. Right. You don't want yeah. that. That sucks. <laughs> Bottom line for me, four and a half out of five stars. Wonderful issue. Go pick it up this week. Uh, it is a fun read. It really is. And I've even left out a little bit of, of uh, story, but the major spoilers are right there for you. Go read it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Major spoilers. Yes, exactly. Rodrigo, do you got some major spoilers for us in the form of a book from Image Comics? Yeah, do you got any? I think I do. Um, Has you got um, a Piani? I'm looking at Mondo number one. I loved him in Generation X. 
Yeah, well, you know, if you looked at the cover of this, you could potentially be confused into thinking that was a character from Generation X. Oh, yeah. As I clearly was entirely hoodwinked. No, <laughs> not really. Um, I actually thought this was about some kind of weird Kool-Aid uh, competitor. Oh, yeah. You be careful about being hoodwinked. They'll make you stop think. You'll think you're looking at Aquaman. Yeah. Um... So, yes, Mondo number one by Ted McKeever. Now, if you uh, go to the Majorspoilers.com website, um, if you go to this week's staff picks, Bruce actually talks about it. And, and uh, he's familiar with this guy's art and, and, and style and everything. But I wasn't. So this was a this was a big surprise for me. This this is some crazy stuff going on here. Crazy stuff. Um, How crazy. Well, the basic premise is there's this guy who doesn't talk and he's a real pushover who works at a radioactive chicken factory. And he accidentally, well, at first it seems accidentally falls into the part that makes the chickens radioactive and gains superpowers. Mm. Um, so he's got that going for him. Yeah. Which is nice. Here's the thing. This all kind of happens because of a renegade chicken. <laughs> um, and if you look at it and, you know, it's, a, it's this black and white comic about this guy who is wronged. And then after he gains these powers, enacts revenge and is led by a bird. This is the crow, except with a chicken. <laughs> it is wow. really weird. I mean, it's not it's not that direct wow. of of a uh, you know if you if you look at it, it's not it's not a direct port, if you will. But the chicken said, "Don't sneeze." The, and, and there's there's this weird scene where this egg is talking to him. Um, it's it's really weird, pretty violent. Um, the uh. The author seems to be making a statement against being a pushover. Um, it's all again, it's all black and white with those that thick inky look. Um, mm -hmm. it's very cool. I, I I like it. I like the art a lot. Um, it's difficult to tell sometimes exactly what's happening or if because the the faces of the people can be so deformed and and uh, stylized. Sometimes it's hard to tell, like, am I looking at a mutant or am I looking at, a, is this supposed to be a normal person who's just really ugly? Mm. But other than that, it's it's pretty solid. Um, I'll give it uh, three and a half slices of meatloaf. Again, I was not expecting what it actually turned out to be, and I am I am really interested. So is this a one shot or is this an ongoing or, or what is this? Uh, well, it's got a number one, so I don't know if it's a one shot or, or if it's an ongoing um, but it's at least a, a limited series. Okay. So the moral of this first issue is don't trust chickens. Uh, well, he doesn't kind of <laughs> get a choice. I guess it's don't don't let chickens who clearly have bad intentions be around. You ah, is that is that is a good rule to live by. It's, it's a four ninety nine yeah. book by Ted McKeever. Is this worth four ninety nine, Rodrigo? Ted McKeever. Well, good. that is that is a hard call to make, honestly. Um, this is, this is not a book for everyone. This is a book where your sensibilities have to align in a certain way for you to enjoy it. So I think it's one of those things that 
if you look at this and you're like, oh, wow, I have not had anything like this since Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, then you're going to be happy to pay the five bucks for it. Mm. But if you look at this and you say, which which end is up, then right. you are probably, you know, this is probably way overpriced. Okay. Uh, I want to go back and do a self-correction on my review real quick. Matthew, the cover that I want, art by uh-huh. Phil Jimenez. Gesundheit. There is also a Mike Allred cover. Cool. And How do you is, tell if it's all red? Uh, because it is actually all red. Actually, large areas of pink. And Uhura. Uh, then there's also a special cover by uh, Mario Alberetti what? and Gabriel Rodriguez. All right. Uhura like wears a red outfit, outfit. Yeah, this, this cover A is, is really, really good. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Uh, this week, Matthew, Venom 13.2 comes out. Last week, Venom mm-hmm. 13.1 came out. Yes. What is it with these point one issues that you're so fascinated by? I am not at all fascinated by them. I find them uh, basically to be a ridiculous gimmick. And uh, the point one issues, the way Marvel presents them is basically they're designed to be jumping on points. Right. And what they tend to be is either the Marvel handbook to the last 15 issues of whatever just happened or something that is literally just, and here's what Iron Man did and Iron Man did this and Iron Man did this and Iron Man did this. But Venom 13.1 I had to look at because Marvel's new thing with the Venom series um, is called the circle of four. Some of you may remember about 15, 20 odd years ago, um, something called the new fantastic four where spider-man wolverine the incredible hulk and ghost rider yes up and became the new fantastic four well in the marvel universe your team will not stay dead unless it's called the champions <laughs> so this issue features venom who's kind of a spider-man uh-huh. the red hulk who's kind of a hulk X-23, who's kind of a Wolverine, and the new Ghost Rider, um, Alejandra, um, Girlst Rider, if you will, and puts them together uh, to fight Blackheart, the son of the devil. I just managed to hiccup and burp in the middle of the same sentence. I don't know how that happened, but I want a medal. It's just because now, you're talented. as I was saying, yeah, I am indeed talented. And uh, this is actually apparently continuing from Venom number 13 and continuing into 13.2. And I believe there may be a 13.3. But this is something interesting. I'm looking at the front page and they're like, here's these four characters, four ways to die, one chance to survive. And I realized that two of our main characters in this book, our heroes, are Thunderbolt Ross and Flash Thompson, who originally back in the Silver Age of Marvel Comics were actually the minor antagonists of the heroes that they're now actually doing a stand-in for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by this and I'm trying to figure out who they can do next. And I'm thinking the, the only, the only thing we can do is foggy Nelson <laughs> as captain universe. <laughs> That's pretty much all that we can do left. Um, the new, uh, ghost rider and X 23 and Wolverine, uh, or excuse me, Wolverine, and uh, the Red Hulk and the new uh, Agent Venom are all trapped in Las Vegas somehow. I didn't read 13, so I don't know how. This issue also has a cameo appearance by Doctor Strange and the Son of Satan. 
Now, the last place I saw Doctor Strange was in The Defenders, where he was, dun da da oh no, something is going on, and we don't know what's going on. The last place I saw Damon Hellstrom was as the villain of The Fearless. <coughs> but apparently, being former Defenders, no matter what side of the law you're on, you can show up and be pals. The Son of Satan and Doctor Strange are trying to figure out why the city of Las Vegas is trapped under some sort of strange shell. Well, so Johnny Blaze is in here somehow, and uh, our fantastic foursome three times removed is trapped in hell and facing basically that thing where we have four villains who are perfectly designed to defeat you. Uh-huh. So the Hulk is all muscle, and he's fighting a guy who's all brains. And uh, the new Ghost Rider is f- facing a character who's basically uh, – he's called the Evangelist, and I think that's all you need to know. And, you know, we go through the entire Is he really big and beefy? The evangelist? Yeah. No. Oh, he looks okay. like he looks like the guy from Poltergeist 3. I see. But he uh, uses his powers to psychoanalyze people. And uh, <laughs> X-23, who's all dark and brooding, ends up fighting a hot blonde cheerleader. And so they actually say on panel, you're just nothing but a cheap Wolverine knockoff. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of hanging a lampshade on it, isn't it? But the issue isn't a bad one. It's just an inexplicable one. I'm not sure what happened in 13 to put these characters here. There isn't a whole lot of context for what's going on other than these four characters who have no reason to team up are now being, you know, psychoanalyzed and torn apart a piece at a time. And somehow Johnny Blaze, Damon Hellstrom and Steve Strange are involved in this as well. So basically, I'm not sure if they're doing a take on the new Fantastic Four, the new Defenders. I I don't know what it is. But even if you go to the page, Marvel does helpfully have the little thing at the beginning where it tells you what's going on. Right. Basically, all this says is they're trying to – Blackheart wants to bring hell to Earth, and now he's created these guys who are polar opposites of our heroes. So – These characters, who are in fact each dark mirrors of existing Marvel characters, are now being faced with their own dark mirrors in a story that is actually a takeoff of characters who were a stand-in for the Fantastic Four 25 years ago. Wow. I don't know if this is brilliant or awful. I don't know if this is genius or cheese sandwich because it's kind of an enjoyable issue. I don't have enough context to really understand right off the top of my head. I don't really have any any frame of reference for the new Ghost Rider. Uh, the new Venom, all I know about him is Spider Island. I don't really care for the Red Hulk, but he you know he doesn't annoy me. Mm-hmm. All in all, I, I have to go two and a half slices of meatloaf right down the middle. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I will say this. We were discussing before the show, um, and, and I, I couldn't remember the name of the rule where you shouldn't uh, flip your axis more than 180 degrees. And Rodrigo says it's the 180 degree rule, Uh sure, which is a great name in the first five pages. The artist's frame of reference switches like four times. Two characters are standing face to face and looking at something. And then they reverse the frame and the characters have somehow managed to flip around backwards the other direction or something. I'm not entirely sure, but it is a little bit distracting. The art is kind of blah, I guess. I mean, there's nothing 
bad about it. There's nothing excellent about it. Johnny Blaze is in the issue, but he's not Ghost Rider anymore. Two and a half slices of meatloaf. If you know what's going on in Venom, please let me know, because I don't know if I can get 13.2. All right. Thank you for that, Matthew. And let's go to one of our other writers this week. We're going to check in with George Chimples, who's going to give us a breakdown of Scarlet Spider number two. Hey, guys. I wanted to talk to you about the second issue of the Scarlet Spider from Marvel Comics this week. Right now, we've got Marvel indulging in a crazy amount of nostalgia for the 90s. There's a defect of miniseries with Venom and Ghost Rider teaming up. We've got Chuck Carnage is getting chased around Colorado by a pack of symbiotes. And there's even an upcoming Age of Apocalypse series coming out. It's all a bit of madness. And from 90s era Marvel, perhaps nothing is more despised than the Clone Saga. Luckily, some of the stuff has been pretty alright, and as far as Scarlet Spider is concerned, it's already way better than most of what happened during the Clone Saga. Scarlet Spider's got Chris Yost on writing duties, Ryan Stegman on pencils, and Mike Babinski on inks, and it features the adventures of Peter Parker's weirdo clone Kane. That's Kane with a K and an E, which is probably the most 90s name ever. It takes place in Houston, and let me tell you, it's nice to have a book that's not set in New York City or Los Angeles. Most of this second issue features Kane battling some fire-flinging villain with a tongue-twisting Nahuatl Azteco-sounding name in a hospital. Yost is a good enough writer that the fight has more meaning than mere fisticuffs. Issues that are almost all fights can be kind of a drag, but Yost expertly builds the character as the fight progresses. As Kane battles the bad guy, he's also still trying to find himself as a hero. Yost makes it very clear that this isn't Peter Parker we're dealing with. Kane hijacks a car, he fires a gun at the villain, and he contemplates a cold-blooded coup de gras. He doesn't wisecrack and he's sort of a jerk, but there's some redemptive sweetness beneath. Stegman and Babinski really did a bang-up job on the art in this issue. Stegman draws the Scarlet Spider with a nice fluidity, and he delivers some imaginative compositions to the layouts. He has a strong understanding of how to use space, and just what makes a Spider-Man comic look good. Anyhow, Scarlet Spider number 2 was an enjoyable read. It looked good, it read good, it was good. I give it 4 out of 5 stars. And let me say, I can only hope that Marvel's continuing nostalgia exercises we can get a reboot for Spider-Man 2099. I'm George Chimples, and I'll be back in a few weeks. In the meantime, you can check out the rest of my reviews at the Major Spoilers website. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for that, George. And indeed, head over to Majorspoilers.com for many more reviews from all of the fine writers over at Major Spoilers. Reviews are done, Matthew. Means it's time. (laughs) Hey, Steven. Yes. It's time. Oh, got me. (laughs) It's 9.39 p.m. Do you know who your children are? For the major spoilers, in this corner, pow! I really think I got that out of order. Of the week, 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 week. You know, one of my uh, favorite uh, B-movie actors is uh, Bruce Campbell. And he may not even be B-list. He may be way down on that list. But certainly over the years, he's made a name for himself as, um, you know, just an actor who has been in almost everything. Briscoe County Jr., Burn Notice, uh, Army of Darkness, a Xena Warrior Princess. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on. He's uh, been in almost everything that Bruce Campbell yes, has been in. Spider-Man, Bubba Hotep. Uh, Bruce Campbell has just become for, I would say maybe uh, for sure my generation, uh, the, the geek, the geek actor, you know, the actor that we geeks know and love. But then I was thinking, I, uh, I follow Nathan Fillion 
on Twitter and he was, he's been posting a lot of stuff and it always seems relevant and in the spirit of pop culture and geeky relevance. And I began to wonder, is Nathan Fillion the next Bruce Campbell? Is he going to start appearing in just about everything and doing the exact same thing that Campbell has done over years? Maybe not for my generation, but maybe for two, two generations back. And then I got to thinking, what, what would happen? What would happen if Bruce Campbell and Nathan Fillion got in the ring together? Who would win in that fight? Matthew Go. You're 42 years old. The second generation from you is still a good 15 years in the future. <laughs> what? Yeah, you know, talking okay. about, uh, you know, the uh, 15-year-olds of today. No. Yes. Those are not the next generation. <laughs> okay. So let's, we'll discuss. Next generation has uh, Jean-Luc Pickard in it. So. Exactly. Jean-Luc Pickard. <laughs> Um, I, I, I think this is an entertaining poll, although I have a problem with the expectation that there has to be a new Bruce Campbell, because part of the reason that there is a Bruce Campbell is because Bruce Campbell didn't fall into a niche that someone else left behind. Bruce Campbell created the post of official Bruce Campbell. So, you know, saying is Nathan Fillion the next Bruce Campbell is kind of like, you know, saying is sausage the next, I don't know, flying saucer. No, it's not, but that doesn't make it any less awesome, especially full of cheese. So and I, I, I took this as who would win in a fight. Yes. Captain hammer. Right. Or Ashley Williams housewares. And then I started thinking about a couple of awesome stories. Um, do you guys, have you ever heard of castle? The show that Nathan Fillion is on on ABC. I have heard uh, of it. I've not watched it. They did, they did a wonderful joke in the Halloween episode of Castle where uh, Rick Castle, his character, dressed up in a brown coat with a gun and boots and came out. And his daughter's like, what are you supposed to be? He's like, me? I'm a space cowboy. And she's like, <laughs> weren't you that like five years ago? Yeah. <laughs> that joke right there. I don't know if Nathan Fillion had anything to do with it. He may not have written it. He may not have done anything other than put on the costume and, and do his best. Waha, I may be mal, waha. But that right there made me go, Nathan Fillion, you are awesome. And then I think back to the particular moment where I said to myself, Bruce Campbell, you're an awesome guy. It was right around season two of Xena when he was Autolycus, which, by the way, looks like it should be pronounced Autolycus, which should be Spanish for turning into a werewolf without control. Autolycus. <laughs> And I said to myself, you know, every time Autolycus comes on this show, it it's almost watchable. Yeah. And so I, I, I voted for Bruce Campbell based on the strength of Autolycus, the strength of Bubba Hotep, the fact that, you know, I actually watched uh, Jack of All Trades. Uh, what is it? That first one, not Evil Dead, but Into the Woods. I actually watched that yeah, one. Yeah, it was called uh, Evil Dead. A, yeah, before Evil Dead. But it was the one where you, we had a couple of sandwiches and we were all in college and we were going to watch a movie and that's the movie we watched. And oh my word, was that awesome. But if it was just a fist fight, it'd be tough because Nathan Fillion's probably, you know, he's got the reach and he's about 15 years younger and, yeah. you know, and he had that nerve cluster uh, moved after the war because he took a piece of shrapnel in it. So you can't use that against him. 
Rodrigo, what about you? I think this, uh, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about it, but this pool is surprisingly uh, well matched. I mean, not just because these are two kind of uh, B-list actors that are still kind of in the radar of us uh, um, attractively uh, inclined. Um, But uh, the the strongest thing that Bruce Campbell's career has going for it Mm -hmm. is Sam Raimi. Mm -hmm. And the strongest thing that Nathan Fillion's career has going is Joss Whedon. (laughs) so really what this fight turns into is is sam raimi gonna rebound from the whole (laughs) spider-man fiasco and how hard is joss whedon gonna skyrocket because of avengers so i think that although i personally think bruce campbell is hilarious and would probably vote for him i would go with nathan fillion because right now he's on the on the gravy train you know, it was pretty tough for me because, uh, like I said, I like them both. Uh, I've known uh, Bruce Campbell of, as an actor for years, not personally. Um, just think he's really brilliant in the way he thinks and his don't give a crap kind of attitude, get over yourself kind of stuff. And Fillion <laughs> seems to be kind of that same way. The problem that I have with, and it's not really a problem, but uh, to me, both of these actors are great because of the... Uh, and I don't want to say underground, but uh, because they are lesser known by a large group of people, uh, you know, by the the mass people at large. Um, Bruce Campbell, though, has become more recognized as a name, I think, by the public at large simply because of burn notice. And I mm-hmm. think that they would look at him as this old washed up guy who probably doesn't have any any punch to him. Uh, See, people keep talking about this burn notice. I oh, if you haven't seen burn is. notice, at least the first three seasons, really, really good. Uh, he plays. I, I don't know what that is. Uh, you don't have cable, do you? I do have cable. Uh, I don't know. Check what out, that is. check out USA networks, uh, burn notice. It's probably up on Netflix. Now he plays, uh, it has to do with, uh, spies and blowing up stuff and, and things happening in Miami. <laughs> so it's, it's Bruce Campbell. Yeah, but he he's actually a retired, I think CIA or I forget what kind of. Oh, is that the show the with the kid from Blair Witch Two? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's why I haven't watched it. Nathan Fillion is still known, but he's not like known by like my grandmother kind of known. Bruce Campbell, I think, I is hitting. The, Bruce Campbell is known by you. You know what? Either. Because of the way Burn Notice has really taken off on USA Network, and then however else it's being uh, TBS, I think has picked it up. I would say a lot of grandmothers would know who Bruce Campbell is. Then again, most a lot of grandmothers are our age now, Matthew. So there you go. Um, no, just, they're not. <laughs> yes, Matthew. Are, sadly, no, sadly, Matthew. Tell people, me that forty-one <laughs> is the point where most people become grandmothers. Sadly, Matthew. Most happens. of the people that well, no, I wouldn't say most, but no, a great number no. of the people we went to high school with are now grandparents, mm-hmm, and that okay. is the sad a, fact. A, that does not, that, that's the equivalent of saying, I don't know anybody who reads Batman, and B, shut up, and also three, I You're do just not believe old. 
that 41 is the average age for a grandmother. I don't know if, I don't know if that's the average age, but today. I'm just saying that there are many grandparents. You, you said the majority. No, I would say there are a lot of grandparents who would know who Bruce Campbell is just because and of third. TBS and USA. You're getting old. But I so voted for Bruce Campbell. Spoilers. I voted for Bruce Campbell. Bowl of the week. Oh, cool. Faithful spoilerites have been uh, showing up in droves to vote on this one. 400 votes. Well, 399. But 400 votes. 61% of the viewing populace, the faithful spoilerites, and a few unfaithful spoilerites. You know who you are. 61% Bruce Campbell for the win. Uh, amazingly, because I honestly thought this was going to be a shutout. I thought it was going to be, we love Bruce Campbell. We love yeah. Bruce Campbell. Who's this other guy? I, I thought Who's so Mal too. Duncan? I don't know any Mal Duncan. Right. 39% of the vote, which is the remainder, saying Nathan Fillion. It's interesting because 61% of the vote basically means that the difference right now is 45 votes. Mm-hmm. And that number has jumped since we started recording. This is going to be a pretty hot uh, topic poll. I hope it hits 12,000 because that would be really awesome. It would be nice. And uh, it would be nice indeed. So everyone head over to Majorspoilers.com and vote on the Major Spoilers poll of the week. Uh, And as we go into this break and listening to all the fine, 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 fine people that called in this week, keep in mind... That according to grandparents.com, the average age of grandparents in the United States is 48. Hey guys, this is uh, Mighty Mac from Ohio's Outer Rim. Uh, I have a question for Matthew. Um, I was hoping uh, you might be able to explain something to me. I just read uh, James Robinson's Golden Age, uh, which uh, it was, oh my gosh, it was fantastic. Anybody who hasn't read it, Try to find it at your local library or buy it or something because it really is, it's just, it's fantastic. Um, but there was a character in there called the Manhunter. And he, he had the same color scheme, like the full body suit and all of that, the same color scheme as the Manhunters from Green Lantern. Um, red body suit, uh, blue gloves, mask, and all of that. So I was just wondering if... I don't know. There, there's a there's an in comic or an in continuity explanation for why they look the same. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, thanks a lot, guys, uh, and uh, keep up the good work. Bye bye. Hey, major spoilers, guys. Uh, this is Paul, one of the guys that's called a couple times. Haven't really told you much about myself, but we'll get past that. Eventually, I might tell you guys who I am and what I do, and maybe we'll go down there. But yeah, still catching up right now, so I don't have anything for your topic of the week. But I did recently get to your Scott Pilgrim Finest Hour podcast and uh, got to your guys' poll of the week, and it doesn't matter too horribly much, but I have a little bit of an inconsistency with your poll of the week. I don't know if anybody mentioned it, but I have in fact seen Twilight movies, unfortunately, and my aunt currently reads the Twilight books. Uh, One of the things that Jack or Jake or whatever his name is, is not is he is not a werewolf. It's been stated in the books and in the movie that Jake is in fact 
a shapeshifter. So I think that that hole should be completely null and void because, well, he's not an actual werewolf. He's just a shapeshifter that pretends to be a werewolf. Plus, if it was an actual all-out fight, unfortunately, I'd probably have to go for Jake because, well, he does turn into like a two-ton wolf and, well, wolf boy versus giant wolf. Yeah, kind of no contest. But yeah, all right, Colin, I'll let you know that. Thanks for doing the show. Great job making me spend lots of money at comic book stores. And yeah, keep doing what you're doing, and can't wait to hear more. Gentlemen, it's John Van Delaware. Just got over my uh, three-day hibernation after a crushing Patriots defeat in the Super Bowl. And I came upon your uh, podcast, which usually cheers me up pretty good. And uh, first and foremost, Thank you very much for doing some Daredevil work, man. Absolutely my favorite Marvel character uh, in the entire universe. So thank you for uh, touching base on him, even if you have done it back in the alpha beta days. Um, just kind of wanted to touch base, though, on this uh, Watchmen uh, prequel thing. You know, I, I voted, and I'm not going to tell you because you'll probably guess where I voted on this, but, I mean, there is fantastic talent uh, attached to this. Um, this project. I mean, really, really quality uh, writers, quality artists, uh, Lee Bergemo, I, I probably just butchered that, but fantastic, fantastic, realistic uh, art. It's almost grotesque in how real it is. Um, and and even though my curiosity is peaked to no end and, and what the possibilities could be, um, my, my inner conscience is telling me that it shouldn't be. And they, this is just a seminal work. It's more than just a comic. It's more than just a story. It's it's art. It's uh, you know, it's it's like if they decided to uh, you know hand the reins of Mouse over to uh, you know Frank Miller and ask him to do a prequel to Mouse. I, I, this is a personal uh, piece of work, a, a, a personal deconstruction of of the whole genre. Uh, that that Gibbons and Moore uh, tackled, and and to just hand that off, I it, it I don't know, it, it's almost offensive. Um, it's not that DC doesn't have the rights to do it because of course they do. Um, it's just one of those things that they shouldn't. Uh, you know, I mean, they're the, the legal aspects of of the comic industry is something that has always just been perplexing and almost disgusting. You know, the way. And DC has handled some of its co you know, creators back in the back in the day, the the, the Schuster and the, uh, Bob Kane and some of those guys. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I, I think this is a book that that should never, or a series of books, I should say, that should never be made. Um, you know, if anything, maybe like what uh, Matthew was saying, you know, a further epilogue on the actual story, what happens after the Watchmen, but. Uh, I, I do recall a uh, podcast that made my mind melt and fall out of my ears uh, listening to with uh, Dr. Coogan, where he explained that The Watchmen was its own sequel. Uh made perfect sense in a really, really creepy way. And uh, yeah, I just just leave it be. Um, you know, for those of you who are, who are buying it, look, I'm going to be eager to hear what you think. Uh, you know, if you guys review it on the show, I'll I'll be interested. Don't get me wrong. Um, that being said, you know they they won't see a, a bloody penny from me. 
you know, um, maybe I'm loyal, uh, maybe I'm an idiot, maybe I'm both. Either way, I'm a spoiler, right? Kirkman got a poop. Thank you so much, everyone who called in this week. Matthew, a couple of questions. First one, Manhunters. Okay. Yes. Now, there was actually the a Manhunter Man from the Golden Age, right? There were actually more than one Manhunter in the Golden Age, but the one to which we're referring, who appeared in um, the Golden Age, the Robinson book, was, yeah, was Paul Kirk. Mm-hmm. And Paul Kirk uh, first appeared in Adventure Comics way, way, way back in the day. Um, Simon and Kirby did work on that book. When Kirby came back to DC in the seventies after, uh, well, after everything went funny at Marvel, one of the things that he did was he did something, I believe, uh, called, uh, I want to say first issue special, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know. But in any case, they brought this character back as Manhunter, but they had also, uh, Archie Goodwin had done another story about another character named Manhunter, and there were several other Manhunters in play. Several years after that, Steve Englehart wrote a story in Justice League of America, and this should tell you something. This didn't happen until like 1977, where they created the Manhunter robots, right? who were retconned as the predecessors of the, the Green Lantern Corps, mm -hmm. and they were the ones that the Guardians of the Universe had created. And, of course, 20 years after that, they retconned that they knocked these off, the Manhunters of Malacandra, which was actually the the organization to which John Jones belonged when he was a cop on Mars. So retcons upon retcons upon retcons. But basically, the Manhunters were inserted into continuity retroactively as extraterrestrial robots. Mm -hmm. And eventually, the histories of all the characters called Manhunter were tied through uh, the Millennium crossover in 1987 or so into that hole where the Manhunters for, that the Green Lanterns created eventually created this cult, which then founded all the stuff and brought around Paul Kirk Manhunter. So yeah. the simple answer is, in the Golden Age, there was a character called Manhunter. People went back and wrote stories into that continuity and eventually, you know, through stuff, in and went, hey, what if, wouldn't this be cool? Well, so, the, yes, the Manhunters that we know are based on the Manhunter who appeared in the Golden Age. Uh, in regards to the color scheme, though, was the original Manhunter not in this Golden Age book? Was he also red with mm -hmm. the green gloves and everything? Uh, blue, actually. He had oh, okay. a, blue gloves he had a red, sure. basically he had red tights and a skull cap. He had blue gloves, trunks, okay. blue boots, and a blue face plate. So there you go, listener. Uh, if you have a question, a comment, or want to contribute to the Major Spoilers podcast, all you have to do is contact us at the Major Spoilers uh, hotline. Rodrigo, we're going to have you do it this week. What is that hotline number, please? The number is 785 I want to say 1949. Oh, close, Rodrigo. Uh, 1939. Yeah. The, year Batman, the year Batman first appeared. That's the easy way to remember. Give away that. my part of the show. Oh right, <laughs> the, uh, you let him bollocks it. I, I remember it because now that Matthew's a grandfather, that's isn't that when Matthew was born? I remember back in my day. Whoa, whoa speaking of old people, wait story. a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Speaking of old people, no, 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 no. I may be may not be able to You're get ruining back up my transition, but I will kick you in the head. <laughs> I'm not ruining your transition. Speaking of You're old people, ruining your transition. 
The Milo Manara Library, Volume 2, from Dark Horse Comics. I think came out last week or is coming out this week. It's coming out real soon or relatively last around week. the time that this podcast was recorded. Uh, Euro Comics, uh, translated from the Italian by Kim Thompson. Uh, Dark Horse is, I guess, going to collect everything that Milo Manara has done um, for English readers. Now, that being said, who is Milo Manara, Matthew? Milo Manara is a well-known Italian artist. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a fine line for me. Some people refer to him as primarily an erotic or pornographic artist. Sure. But uh, Milo Manara has, for the last 40-odd years, been basically writing and drawing the, you know, the really, really awesome, you know, European-type story comics that we never get in America. And Milo Manara is not afraid to show you the female body. No, And I'm not talking about, you know, the way they do it in Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose. I'm talking about, yep, there's (laughs) some naked women and there's some naked... The way they do it in Penthouse. Uh, and that's, yeah. I think, actually, and, we I, we were talking before the show. I think that's where I first saw his work. It was either in Penthouse Comics or Penthouse itself when they used to have those mm-hmm. features. I just distinctly remember I, his art style. And it's one that is very distinct. Yeah, I believe that around the time that you and I were in college or possibly in graduate school, uh, Penthouse was, well, first of all, doing their Penthouse Comics line we discussed on a previous podcast a couple of years ago. But they were also they were taking a couple of Menara stories and serializing them in the monthly issues of Penthouse, right? And uh, they also there were a couple of other guys that they did that we probably had to look into too. Uh, but Menara's work specifically, just at that point in time when I was first being, uh, you know, exposed to it, exposed being the appropriate word, you get to a point. And this was, I mean, this was really, really amazing. The art is so good that even when it's in penthouse and, you know, it's next to these naked women and it's, it's featuring pretty much naked women. Mm-hmm. It, it's not about the naked women. It's about how incredibly, you know, textured and wonderful the art is and also the naked women. Well, and then part of it too, I think, uh, and Rodrigo, maybe you can chime in on this is, not only just the art, which is really kind of why Dark Horse is collecting this for the art, but it's also the story, too, is, um, for the most part, very impressive. And uh, Manara has worked for years with uh, Hugo Pratt, I believe. Uh, that's the person who wrote El Gacho, the uh, uh, the first story uh, in this piece. Uh, uh, Rodrigo, do you do you think that it's not, not only the art, but also the story? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that... Um Definitely the El Gaucho story is pretty compelling. Um, there's a lot, there are a lot of characters in it and mm-hmm. every character has a voice mm-hmm. and they just kind of move the story forward. Uh, who wants to give us a breakdown of the story, Rodrigo? Sure. <laughs> so there's some British type imperial people trying to get some stuff in Argentina. Meanwhile, um, and that's kind of the, the backdrop of it is some British, you know, basically 
government sanction for the number, but basically pirates right. off the coast of Argentina trying to get in on some territory. Um, but that's not the most important part. The most important part are the characters who are on this British boat, uh, who are a, uh, a, a, a young, um, drummer boy prostitute for all oh, okay. per- yeah um yeah there's there's the uh a, a volunteer a young drummer he's a he's a handsome young man um he uh there's a hunchback who is kind of a a deckhand but uh also is the one who manages the girls mm-hmm. and um there's a kind of um what i want to say like a uh older meaner deckhand who may or may not have a heart of gold you don't find out until later that he in fact does not mm. um uh there's also a few characters who are on on the mainland um mainly these uh black and black descended um guys who are basically searching around for their freedom and it just never comes and now they're getting in- involved in this war um, and that just kind of, uh, builds this powder keg of, of interest and, and these characters who really, none of the, none of the principal characters are driving this war or anything like that. They're just caught up in it and they're yeah, trying they, to they escape or to make their own life in, in this new situation that just keeps getting worse and worse for them. And at the center of this, beyond the, uh, the young, uh, drummer boy, is Molly the prostitute. And mm-hmm. Molly and the drummer boy kind of have a thing for one another. Uh, the hunchback a- is in love with Molly. And the older uh, deckhand just wants to uh, make a living, get out of the army, and start a brothel on the mainland. Mm-hmm. And he's going to take some what of these I like girls about with this, him. What I, what I really like about this is... Uh, there's there's kind of a, a period notion here where the characters don't feel any need to be politically correct. Right. And uh, the, the, the prostitutes, the four that we see, I believe, are all Irish prostitutes mm-hmm. who were, for all intents and purposes, sold into slavery. Right. And, you know, the hunchback, the hunchback takes crap because the hunchback is, is descended from Jewish people. And one of them is like, Oh, you're the ones who killed Christ. And I'm like, right. Oh, wow. Right. And there, there's, you know, a, a minor character who says that all white men are scum. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, what about black men? They're scum too. He's like, aren't uh-huh. you half white and half black? I believe that I too am scum. Yeah. But it's, it's fascinating to read this. It's kind of like, to me, it's like the lower decks version of Horatio Hornblower, where nobody is, you know, nobody is truly this heroic person. Oh, no, no. Above the odds trying to defeat. And it's, it's basically people being bastards on pirate ships. And I think that's kind of, oh my God, the pirate ships. And it's not, I wouldn't really say, I don't know. They're not really. Well, they're uh, ships. They're ships. They are members of the Royal Navy and the, uh, and the Royal Army. Uh, They, as Rodrigo said, they've been sanctioned to try to take over. uh, uh, What is it? Buenos Aires. uh, Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires. And, um, and it's just like, there is nobody in this story. 
that has any redeeming yeah. value. Uh, everybody yeah, is even- in it for themselves. It is a and mm-hmm. and it's also a very tragic uh, story where nobody ends up with who they want to end up with, and a lot of people die. And even the people who are admirable have a downside where you're just like, oh, I can almost get by. Oh, no. You know, there there are moments where you you kind of get a feel for a character and you're thinking, okay, well, this character is this. Mm -hmm. And then clearly they're not. And, you know, all of the characters are very human and and very multifaceted. Right, right. Tom, for example, who's our central character who is telling this story, uh, he is retelling mm-hmm. this story a hun- almost 100 years later uh, to to somebody. He's lived to a ripe old age. He was on this uh, ship, fell in love with Molly the whore, and uh, was taken to uh, land to act as kind of a go-between, as, an, a, as a sign of good faith, with the slaves and the... Um, uh, Lower populace, I guess, not the rich, not the rich folk uh, who are going to go in with the army when they invade. Uh, He gets captured when the Spanish army uh, discovers their camp. He's thrown into a into jail. Uh, He helps rescue a young girl um, is part of a group that helps rescue a young girl uh, of one of the plantation owners. And at the very end, the plantation owner is like, hey, take my daughter and my family to safety and I'll give you your freedom. And later on, he hooks back up with Molly and Matt, the hunchback and the others. And he's basically given his freedom to go do what he wants to do. And he decides he wants to go back to uh, the Navy and check in. Uh, He doesn't want to be part of any kind of wild scheme couple of the uh, girls go back with him, including Molly. They're instantly um, captured and detained. And yeah. Molly and the hunchback are hung as traitors. And Tom, yeah. the drummer boy, can do nothing about it. It's already too late for him. That's how tragic this story is. You think he's going to get the girl and then she's hanging from the. Uh, from the noose. And I'm. I'm not entirely clear if this is uh, – th- I know this is the second volume of right. Uh, right. Dark Horse's collections. I'm not entirely sure if this chapter that we read of El Gaucho is an individual it, chapter. It, it is. It's, it's a standalone it's a story. story. It's just a standalone story. Because okay. it feels like chapters 3 through 20 of an ongoing tale. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to know more about these characters. You know, I want to see, well, first of all, I want to see more of the, the characters. And that's not just an indication that, you know, Monara occasionally has half naked women running around. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to be in this world and have, you know, a little more understanding of what happens, what happened and right. you know, what kind of things can come next. Yeah. I don't think we see, I was doing some, and I went back and read volume one or flipped through it at least. And I do know that the that this uh, El Gaucho is not uh, related to um, to the first volume. Uh, the first volume has uh, what is the story? Another Hugo Pratt story in it called Indian Summer, where um, things go wrong in uh, during the uh, time of the Pilgrims, uh, the early colonies, and it ends up being a huge uh, brawl between the uh, the Pilgrims and the Indians. Essentially, so it's really not related in any way, and I haven't found anything else by Pratt or Minara 
that indicate that there's other stories in, in this uh, Tom Brown uh, case. In, and it may be because of the fact how the story ends. Uh, as I said, there are right. a bunch of Spanish soldiers who stumble upon this camp or come upon this camp. And inside is this 100 year old man who happens to have blue eyes and speak English and Spanish. And he's recounting the story mm-hmm. of the first time he ever fell in love. And the soldier that is taking all of the notes says, wow, this is great. Uh, tell me more. And he basically says, I don't remember what happened after after my love yeah. was killed. Old age has the best of me. Yeah. And that's clearly a lie. That right. is clearly a right. lie. When I was when I was a kid, though, um, my grandmother had a house full of books and some of the things that I read, like, you know, the the Disney uh, collected stories Mm -hmm. would always do historical tales with kind of a yo ho ho kind of a feel to Mm -hmm. it where everything was very shiny and it was a better world. And as I've aged and as I think our pop culture has aged, having those tales be less about, you know. Horatio Hornblower and his heroics on the sea and having it be more like, you know, this story or moving more towards this story where the characters all have feet of clay mm-hmm. and nobody gets a happy ending. You know, from the beginning, nobody's going to get a happy ending. It's just a question of who's going to get hosed first and who's going to get hosed worst. That transition has led to some stories being too cynical for my taste, simply because they're trying to be more quote unquote realistic. Right. This one strikes a, an almost perfect balance for me in it. I don't ever feel like, you know, it's, it's a fictionalized account of real events, but I also don't feel like it's something where the artist and the writer are trying so hard to show how worldly and, you know, how sophisticated they are by pointing out that, you know, even the, the, the heroes of old were bastards like us. Mm hmm. This this is a, a story where even the most minor character feels like somebody who, you know, walks into the middle of the story with a fully realized backstory. Right, right. You know, we, we, we open with uh, the Spanish soldiers. I believe they're Spanish. Mm-hmm. They may be Italian Maybe. showing up and actually meeting Tom. It, it's honestly, it's hard to tell because they seem to be speaking Spanish. Right. But I know that this is a story that was written uh, by or drawn, by I believe, either yeah. in Italy mm-hmm. or near Italy mm-hmm. or while eating a pizza. Yes. So, you know, it's it's something where Maybe my both. my Western brain kind of emulsifies a little bit the mm-hmm. Italian and the Spanish history mm-hmm. and, and stuff. But mm-hmm. even the characters, the minor characters who show up and start talking to 100-year-old Tom, you're like, these characters have real lives and complaints and you know, as we get into it, I kind of say to myself, hey, I wonder what happened to that guy. Right. Or the the old dude who led them in there. What happened with that guy? You know, you want to know more about even the most horrible. And there are some horrible, horrible people in this book. Oh, yeah. You want to know more about even the most horrible characters in the story. Rodrigo, what are your thoughts on on this story as far as the horrible horribleness of the uh, of the characters? Um. As far as the horribleness of the characters, I mean, it's it's certainly something that's there. My biggest issue with it is the the perspective that it takes, and and you could argue that since it's a a, a man telling this story and he's just recounting what he remembers, but it's a little rapey. I oh, mean, yes. there's it's a little 
it's a little well, racisty and, too. Well, there's well, forget forget yeah. the, you know the the racism is something that we are used to going back and seeing former things like that. But this treatment of women, yeah. um, at least for me personally, really, really does not jive with kind of that the the modern sensibility of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that the uh, fairly long sequences, uh, especially in this one, and actually in the previous uh, volume, there's even yeah. more and probably right. more uh, thorough. But, you know, fairly long sequence in which a woman gets raped. Mm-hmm. It's it's not there for you to say, oh, look at how this poor woman is being raped. It, the way that it's framed and the way that it's put together, it's kind of there to titillate you. I, I, I really get that feeling from it. I, I, I um, don't know so much from the rape. I don't know so much from the rape scene. I don't know if I can agree with you there that that is there to to titillate. Uh, maybe it is. But, I, I you know, you've got other portions of the book where there's sex and there's people having orgies and having all this stuff. And then you get to this horrible act where the soldier is raping a a, a teenage girl. Um, and it just becomes brutal and terrible and makes you uncomfortable. Well, and that's fine. And then the guy gets his wiener cut off. Even there. Well, you know, Um, in the lead into the book, it's a young, earlier in the story, a young boy gets raped. Right. We don't even see that scene. Right. It's just mentioned. Right. Well, and that particular sequence follows from when that, you know, uh, story-wise, it follows from a point where that young girl decked that soldier in the face for, you know, daring to speak to her. So mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a problem when it comes to Minara's work, especially in America, where we, we I think, were introduced to the erotic side of the work first, where every single time, you you know, the first thousand pages that I've I've read of Minara – are all sexual fantasies and some mm-hmm. of them are particularly disturbing. I mean, if you look at the, the undertones of click, there's some rapiness there too. Now I'm not saying that that's intentional. I'm not saying that that's something that the, that the artist intentionally puts in there. I think that for me, the sexuality in this book from the writer's perspective, and I don't believe Minara wrote this story. No, this, this is Hugo was, Pratt. Hugo Pratt is the Hugo writer. Pratt wrote it. I think from the writer's perspective, the sex is part and parcel of what happens. So the prostitutes having to prostitute themselves is part of that story. And the moment where, you know, we, we're like, oh, yeah, ha ha, somebody, the cabin boy lined his, never mind. But when I got to that rape sequence, I was I guess I was bothered by it, but I, I felt like it was it wasn't super highly Minara sexualized to the point where I looked at it and went, yes, he's trying to do this the same way he would he's doing the sex scenes. Right. I think that and again that that may be that may be a justification. It may mm-hmm. be a you know it may be my part working so hard. Well I felt I, that sequence was awful and what followed from it was just as awful. Yeah, but at the same time, for the character part and kind of to, and I don't want to say justify a rape scene, but the girl is being raped. The hunchback who is in love with Molly, not the girl in this scene, 
He's in love with Molly and knows he can never have her. And every time he tries to make an attempt with any of the whores, he's usually shut down. He basically has, because of how he looks, his heritage, and what he does, nobody wants anything to do with him. Here he comes in and essentially uh, brings justice to the guy that raped the girl. He doesn't stop the rape. It's already happened. But he does kill the guy in a very bloody, disgusting way. The girl, Mm -hmm. who initially is very shaken up and disturbed by the encounter, by the end of the book, right before he uh, right before the hunchback runs back to to the Navy, you start to see that she really wants to be his friend. She really kind of digs on him because he is the hero of her tragedy. And unfortunately, he didn't stick around long enough to discover that. Uh, you know, he he lost that happiness. And then, of course, he goes back and gets killed. So in a in a way of defining the tragedy for this girl who's, number one, been raped and loses somebody that she either a could be a friend with or uh, the love interest loses him. And the fact that the hunchback doesn't, you know, you have to set up that that tragedy for the hunchback as well. You know, that scene is kind of necessary. And granted, they don't go into as graphic detail as we see in some of the other scenes. Now, granted, you do see her getting urinated on and you do see a knife to the groin and many other things in that two page, uh, treatment. That's, I I mean, that's just how I I see it, but you know, I agree with you, Rodrigo. It is uncomfortable. And I can definitely see that, you know, it's the individual reader's perspective as to whether they, they actually cross that moral event horizon. I think that, Mm -hmm. In contrast with other scenes in the book, um, I mean, we see close-up detail of Tom being tied to a post and lashed. You know, we see close-up detail of people being beaten, people in the midst of fights, you know, mm-hmm. prostitutes showing their wares, you know, in, in post-coital scenes. We see things in this book that are ugly, and I think that at least from my perspective, this is another, this is another example of that. It doesn't have to be, you know, the PC shiny people in funny hats story, Mm -hmm. but I can definitely see where you could look at that and say that, yeah, they may have gone too far. And I think part of it, and we discussed this before the show, Milo Minara draws an amazing female genitalia when, and and naked (laughs) women in, in particular, but And this is the thing. I mean, I've read a lot of comics that that purport to have naked women in them, and it's really hard to do specific parts of both the male and female anatomy and have it not look cartoony and stupid. Mm -hmm. And I think that because Manara has that ability to draw, you know, an an amazingly well-rendered bajingo, if you will, and to have, you know, the sex scenes that are so, you know, very sexy, sexy. When it gets to the point where that rape scene comes in, I could definitely, you know, I'm not as off put by it. I'm disgusted by it. And I feel like the writer wants me to be disgusted by it, but I don't necessarily feel like, at least for me, that I'm, I'm expected to take Mm -hmm. that, you know, titillation and that tee hee boobies factor that sometimes pops up at other points in the story. Right. There, you know, there's a point where they're they're teasing they're teasing the prostitutes and they're like ha ha you need to wash yourselves and the dwarf or the the hunchback throws a a pitcher of water on one of the girls which causes her dress to fall open and expose her boobs mm-hmm. you know her breasts are on display for like three panels and everybody's like oh ha ha and right. that was a moment where I'm like 
yeah, that was that was pure. Oh, look, you know, look what we can do. Cinemax after dark. I like this. Uh, this uh, there's a forward in the, in the book. Uh, and this one line kind of sums up what I think uh, El Gaucho is about. It says, in El Gaucho, we revel in and are repulsed by the most extreme ranges of the human condition. And we are given that in in this book, uh, both in the story and in the art. And that and I think that kind of sums that up uh, for me. Um, Rodrigo, uh, beyond the story, what are your thoughts on the art itself? Because this oh, is a the, collection the of an artist. Yeah, the art is absolutely magnificent. There is nothing in this book that isn't perfect. Um, it's it's just spectacular in every way. He does. He's somebody who does every inch of the human body well. Mm-hmm. Every character has a different face. Every character has different hands, different legs, different boobs. Um, you know, it it is just. The art is just spectacular in every way and, and well worth whatever the crap uh, Dark Horse is, is charging just for that art. 60 bucks is the cover price on this thing. $59.99. It's, it, it's a hardback, right? Yes. Nearly 300 pages, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely, that is way beyond reasonable. They could really, really crank that up if you consider how good this art is yep. and that it's a hardback, right? Yep. Yeah, I believe so. Oh, there you go. So the one thing that Matthew, go ahead and, and I want to hear what, what your thoughts are on the art or if you have anything else to, to add besides uh, the ability to draw the female anatomy. Um, well, not just the female anatomy. I mean, the, the, the thing that really sells it for me, when I said pirate ships earlier, I was thinking in terms of, you know, the classical ships. There's a sure. sequence around about page 45 or 50 where there are literally dozens of ships mm-hmm. in the harbor mm-hmm. and full rigging and there's a sequence where you know somebody is standing on the deck of the ship and it's a long shot and you look down and you see people behind him you see yep. the mast you see the sail you see all of the rigging and the the stuff and it's it's just gorgeous it's phenomenal yeah you know and, when we you know, um, even when we reviewed black said i think it was one of our listeners commented in and said you know in in europe People just the artists do take that extra time. There's not this push to have the book done on the monthly basis or the quarterly or whatever. Yep. It's just done when it's done. And so they can spend more time in some fantastic detail like this. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I have said this before. One of the one of the oh, reasons that I love. Shut up. <laughs> One of the reasons that I love Milo Minara's art is because Milo Minara draws really, 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 really 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 beautiful female forms but sure there's also there there's something that's a little bit more difficult when you're talking about the human body and i'm talking both male and female lots of parts of the human body are hideous sure they are and when you draw them in comic form you do shorthand versions thereof it's like Mm -hmm. you notice how colossus always has those weird little indentations in his ribs i don't know what those are those aren't muscles they aren't bones but it's something that comic book artists put in there to, you know, justify the musculature of the upper body. Right. Milo Minara draws the most difficult portions and the most freakishly, you know, alien looking portions of human anatomy, both male and female. And he does it in a way that is really beautiful. And that's, you know, that's kind of my point here is if you come into this book just wanting to look at pretty pictures and not read the story. 
Mm-hmm. First of all, be 18. Yes. Because there's some sex. There's some violence. There's some ugly. There's some really, really un, un, inappropriate human nature. Right. But if you just want to read this book to look at the pictures, I this is my third pass through it. Mm-hmm. First time I looked at it, I just looked right at it and looked at it. You know, one of the most fascinating characters in this book? Who's that? Matthew the Hunchback's Fro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if if you watch this book, yeah. now I have I have basically that hair. I have yeah. that that kinky, psychotic, you know, kind of a mix between a Kentucky waterfall and a magnificent Jufro. And I this is this is the way my hair goes. And there are days when it's better than others, and there are days when it's just god awful. And throughout this story, you know, Matt Matt the Hunchback goes through his day, and you can see the wind catches his hair when he's on the ship. And mm-hmm. watching what he does with that, you know, just that mane of hair that the character has is fascinating. The amount of work that goes into just that, you know, yeah, just and that, every yeah. once in a while we'll see him see him tie his hair up. He ties he's tying his hair back and he's going off into things. That's the kind of brilliance, the kind of detail. That makes this such a joy just to look at and then having, you know, having the story itself be super awesome yeah. and yes, disturbing and inappropriately rapey you know, in the midst. I, I kind but, of have a slight problem with Manara's art. Quickly go to page 17 uh, in, in the okay. uh, review copies that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the great things that from the very first page that I, that I saw wheel. this. On the very first page when I opened this, I was like, not even really knowing anything about Minara's history or where he comes from or anything like that. I was like, wow, this really feels like a classic spaghetti western in every single way that this is drawn. And, of course, the spaghetti westerns are the low-budget westerns that were shot in Italy. Uh, and the one that most people will recognize as a spaghetti western is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with Clint Eastwood. And who do we uh-huh. see right okay. there on page 17? The ugly, the ugly Eli Wallach, right now jump to page. Uh, let me find it here really, really quick. It is. The, the, so uh, El Gaucho is uh, the one, the main story. There are a series of um, trial by jury stories, which are short chapters where we look at uh, famous people throughout history and we put them on mm-hmm. trial. We have uh, Oppenheimer. We have um Helen of Troy. Troy. We have a bunch of we have a bunch of people that are that are there. Uh, There is a trial by jury of the um, general who bombed, who was in charge of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I I think it's no, no, no. I'm sorry. It's the Oppenheimer one. Um, There is a shot of a soldier standing outside the gate and it is John Wayne. Mm -hmm. And it's just. Yeah. And I saw that in both of those instances and I didn't, and I didn't go through the entire book going, Oh, where else did he do this? But that kind of lessened, it kind of lessened the impact of how great the art is because it's like, Oh, so stunt casting. Stunt casting. Yeah. But it's something that, uh, I mean, it pulled me out of the story and said, Oh, look, it's the guy from the good, the bad, the ugly, or, Oh, look, that's John Wayne. And not that's oh, let kind me of continue like, to follow know, that story. That's 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 genius bonus too, to some degree. Nah, I guess you know, that moment where you're reading something, you're like, oh, I I'm catching something that the artist is putting in yeah. as an in joke for the people who catch it. 
Right. And I think that's probably what it was. I don't know. Honestly, I think that, you know, you look at it and it's like, oh, look at how magnificently rendered the, the, um, the guy, you know, old Tom's hair is and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And look at, look at this, uh, hut that he lives in and all that stuff is like, and then you stop to think of it as like, why the hell was that framing narrative even in there for? Right, right. I so mean, basically, draw the hut. <laughs> yeah, basically, he goes, um, hey, all the oldest man I've ever met, tell me a story or tell me how you got to be here in mm-hmm. out in the Pampas, you know, mm-hmm. and he's like, OK, I will tell you a story. Once Say I met Pampas a girl again. and then they hung her. <laughs> yeah. But how the crap did you get here? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> page I mean, 240 like, is that, page 240 is that other moment. Um that that was just uh either the guy who was writing it saying I w- I want to see Milo create this setting mm-hmm. or man you know what I'm way the crap into right now Argentina. So yeah. let's do this whole let's do this British thing except it actually happens in Argentina. Well, Hugh, Hugo Pratt Hugo Pratt uh, spent a lot of his youth in Argentina, and that's why the mm-hmm. story – and he loves Argentina, and that's why he set the story there. Right, so. right what you uh, know, I guess. The reason yeah. that they call them spaghetti westerns is because is... they had lots of spaghetti. No, because they were made by Italian filmmakers and Italian writers. Right next to John Wayne is Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, yeah, from where Eagles, where Eagles Dare, or I think that's the one. Um, it's, but I think <laughs> that, you know – the, 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 the reason that we call them spaghetti westerns is because there was, uh, who's the guy who did that? It wasn't Dario Argento. Who oh, did you're the, talking the about Dollar the... trilogy? Sergio. Oh, was Sergio. Uh, no, 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 no. It is, uh, no. <laughs> Sergio Leone. Sergio Leone. Yes. Okay. So that guy was from Italy. Mm hmm. And I kind of, I, I, I get the feeling, and I may be oversimplifying things, that the spaghetti western. The Western specifically in Italy is kind of what Donald Duck is in the Netherlands. It's something, you know, that came out of America and they, they glommed onto sure. and turned into, you know, their own shtick. And I think that the references to spaghetti Westerns in here have probably a lot to do with the fact that we're dealing with an, uh, you know, an Italian. Well, and, and I say, and I say spaghetti Western simply because of the spaghetti Western shot in the Western part of uh, Italy the landscapes and everything that we see and the clothing and the style uh, look very much like what we would see in that. So I think it's it's the regional thing with Manara being from Italy and Sergio Leone uh, being from Italy and, and uh, Good, the Bad and the Ugly being shot in Italy. You know, Sergio all of that has an, Im- uh, has a, uh, uh, an impact in how that story is told. Uh, but it's just those little the little stunt casting moments that kind of just yank me out for a moment and go, hey, wait a minute. And then put me back in. Um, you know what? Uh, we've spent we've spent so much time uh, talking about El Gaucho. Is there really anything that you guys want to add about Trial by Jury? The six stories or seven stories that are included in in the end. They're pretty fascinating, but yeah. When when I was growing up, my mom had a lot of. She actually had a lot of comics, but none of them were like superhero comics. She actually had a lot of. Uh, mythology comics there was Mm -hmm. this uh, series that came out like monthly and she had every last one of them and they were mostly greek mythology a little bit of hindu mythology and some other stuff going on um 
very faithful adaptations. And this really reminds me of that. And I'm starting to wonder if, because uh, I had never knew where those comics originally came from. They were translated into Spanish, but I really doubt that they were Mexican comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really reminds me of it. It also gives me that vibe of, remember when comics first started and nobody knew what to do with them? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's kind of like, I got an idea. Let's put famous people on trial. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting approach. And I feel like, you know, something that Steven said uh, before the show, pejoratively, uh, but intentionally so, you know, you read the first one and you're kind of like, okay, I know where this is gone. Right. And while it's, you know, each one is different and each one is interesting. For instance, I know little to nothing about Nero. Mm -hmm. I liked uh, the Helen of Troy. I liked the Oppenheimer, but it was kind of a. It wasn't necessarily even a letdown. It was kind of like uh, cleansing the palate at the end of a meal. It's something where it's like, I'm going to have a lemon sorbet now. But for me, the 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 real meat of this story was the El Gaucho tale. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and that's really what it is. And and these uh, trial bar juries aren't, a, you know, these were released individually uh, at at different times. Yeah. I find it interesting. And they've apparently never right, been collected that, before. Ever. Yeah, until right here. Uh, we get... Helen of Troy twice. Yeah, the, in this book, at least I, our I, review copy has Helen of Troy twice. I didn't, I didn't quite catch whether it was the same story twice, but I think it is. Yeah, and that that may just be that may have just been like either two printings of it or just the fact that um, maybe our review copy is a little weird. Yeah, maybe a little wonky. But uh, okay, guys. Um, bottom line. Bottom line on the on these uh, on this book. Matthew, why don't you go first? This was your selection this week. Yep. I likes me some Milo Minara. I likes me some Milo Minara indeed. And this is this is a, a, a an entertaining comic. It's a troubling comic. It's uh, a, a fascinating, you know, sort of story. It's interesting. It's historical. Yeah, it does have some creepiness, but it also has some real, you know, extreme beauty in not just the art, in the way that it's expressing itself. Mm -hmm. And I I think that the fact that it feels so authentically historical and not, you know, a a whitewashed, if you'll excuse the expression, version of what history may have been like, I I enjoyed the hell out of this. This was a, a wonderful volume for me. And, you know, if the next volume gets into the stuff where it's all, you know, all sexy, sexy all the time, I'm still going to read that. I was expecting this book to be more like the sexy, sexy all the time that I read growing up in Penthouse. And it wasn't. And that did not dissuade or disappoint me. And that that's a, you know, given how I am a fan of pornography in many of its forms. I think that right there should be a testament to how good this volume is. There isn't nearly the amount of uh, nudity and sex and teehee my top fell off that I kind of expected and maybe subconsciously wanted. And mm-hmm. that did not damage my enjoyment of the book. Okay. Uh, I would recommend this if if you really just want to look at some fantastic art. This is really a good book. There are some uncomfortable moments. There are some funny moments. There are just the detail, though, in this book is just beyond phenomenal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you want to see some phenomenal black and white, certainly the trial by jury stuff is is worth checking out. And I was just checking it out. The second Helen of Troy is actually a retrial. 
uh, oh, nice. in the book. So there you go. Um, yes, it's a second. It, it, it's a it's diff- just different story. Fantastic art all around. The stories by Hugo Pratt. The the main story is really good. Uh, but I think you really have to be a, 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 a true fan of this art and art style and want to appreciate comics from other countries just not generated here in the U.S. I would give this a thumbs up, yeah. but I'm uh, you definitely need to be over 18 and, and maybe even a little bit more. You definitely need to be a mature reader uh, going into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rodrigo, what did you think of this, of this uh, overall bottom line? Um, I think that... Uh, this and specifically El Gaucho, specifically the the main story in the second volume of the of the Manara collection, um, is not just a story about a different place and a different time, but a story written and created in a different place and a different time. And there are going to be things that modern American sensibilities find troubling. Um, I would say again, the art is fantastic. If you are, if you want to check out this art, then certainly do it. If you want to get into the story, uh, you know, proceed with caution. And I would say, especially if you're a girl, you know, steal yourself. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Rodrigo. And thank you listeners for being a part of the major spoilers experience next week. It's another Matthew suggestion. Old man, Logan. Why? Wait, what? Because people have been begging for Old Man Logan, and Matthew said we should finally do it, because it's one of his well, favorite I books. said, what? <laughs> <laughs> we know that you love comics, and we do too. We will talk with you soon. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at Majorspoilers.com, and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers Forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com slash majorspoilers. Bad the X-ray vision of a Superman, I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, they kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler If I'm stark raving rich like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine be in the Middle East With a king sign throwing soldier what a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler Whoa, 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 whoa What a major spoiler Major Spoilers It's copyright 2012